Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey everyone, it's Reed. I have to say thank you. 50 million. That is the number of times Lincoln Project podcast episodes have been listened to since we relaunched in February of 2021. That is all because of you, and I cannot say thank you enough. And here's to 50 million more. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Brian Stelter, journalist and New York Times bestselling author whose latest book is Network of Lies, the epic saga of Fox News, Donald Trump, and the battle for American democracy, which is now available wherever fine books are sold. I have my copy here. Gang, go out and get yours. Previously, Stelter was a media reporter at The New York Times, the chief media correspondent for CNN Worldwide, and the anchor of CNN's Reliable Sources. He is currently a special correspondent for Vanity Fair and host of their Inside the Hive podcast and a Walter Shorenstein Fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School's Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy. Today, he's coming to us from New York City. Brian, welcome. It is an honor to be here. Thank you. Brian, you occupy a very unique space in oh, I'm American, not like this question, American politics and media. No, it, it's an interesting <laughs> question because you've written a book about Fox News in which you are the observer. You're also a participant, but in some ways you're also sometimes a character, which is I know. they worry about the things you're going to say or the things that you're going to cover over at Fox News, even though, and I know that CNN is now your former home, but that they routinely denigrated the fact that CNN didn't nearly have the ratings, that they were always at the top, you know, Tucker, three million a night, et cetera, et cetera. So what is it like to sort of be the father, son and holy ghost of American political media? Well, if that's not a pull quote for the back cover of the book, I don't know what is. <laughs> what, what an endorsement. Thank you. Thank you for that. I felt like I had to be candid about the, you know, the uniqueness of this and insert myself into the book at times, and in part because. By being a cable news host, I understand a little bit of what the Tucker Carlson's go through. I know a little bit of the psyche, not all of it, definitely not. I'm not going to claim to be in Sean Hannity's head, but I, I get what that red light does to you, what the red light on the camera does to you. I also have to acknowledge that uh, these guys love calling me names. Tucker Carlson calls me a eunuch. Greg Gutfeld puts my photo up on TV all the time and makes fat jokes. Uh, by the way, thank you, Greg. I've lost 30 pounds thanks to your harassment. But look, I think the most important angle you just mentioned is the idea that inside Fox, people are sharing stories that people like me are writing and they're worrying about what we're going to say. And, and honestly, I never knew that was happening until the Dominion case happened. The Dominion case, you know, versus Fox, this defamation lawsuit is really the, the initial reason why I wrote the book. And, and then later Tucker was fired and all this other shit went down. But if you just start with the Dominion case, 
reading all these emails and texts from inside Fox was extraordinary. And you're right. My name came up several times in these messages. Some of my own text messages with Fox News PR got swept up in Dominion's discovery. But here's the, the one that stands out to me the most. The morning that Maria Bartiromo starts lying about Dominion, the morning the big lie about Dominion is born, November 8th, 2020, the head of Fox News PR texts her deputy and says, I am screaming at Stelter via text. So I missed some of the interview. <laughs> so they're basically saying like, I'm too busy putting out this fire over with Brian Stelter. I didn't get to watch Maria's crazy lie. Like that was the dynamic. That was the truth because my show was going on the air on CNN in about five minutes. And Irina Briganti was basically trying to, you know, she was doing her job, by the way. She was pushing her talking points. She was arguing Fox's point of view because I was about to go on the air and be pretty critical of Fox. So yeah, it is a strange thing that I am a participant in the story. I want to get back to the camera because you write something here at the beginning of the book. But for the layperson, for civilians like me from the media perspective, I mean, I've been on television and I host a podcast and I write, but I'm not, you know, those are moments in my life, right? They're not the bulk of it. There are times when you're writing about Rupert and Lachlan Murdoch that it is straight out of succession, right? Oh, totally. And then there are times when you're writing about the personalities at Fox, whether or not it's on-air hosts, on-air talent, their producers, the executives, that it's straight out of like Apple's The Morning Show, right? Like that <laughs> these shows have done a really, really good job of art imitating the real life inside these pressure cookers. First of all, I'm glad to hear you say that because I'm a producer on the morning show. Oh, you and are? Okay, cool. Yeah, I am. And even though it is, it imagines a broadcast network morning show, you also see something called Eagle News on the morning right. show, especially in season three. <laughs> Eagle yeah. News is clearly Fox News. Everybody who right. sees it knows it. And what we're trying to do in those scenes is show what the alternative reality is like. One news event happens over in the real world. And then how is it viewed in the Fox world? How is it warped and, and portrayed? And, and so that's what we do get into in the morning show. But listen, I've got to give Succession the big shout out here. Succession is the key. And you know, that's why I talk about the pain sponge in this book. That's why I talk about the, the battle that's going to happen someday for control of Fox. The writers and producers of Succession were so smart and frankly, so ahead of this story. They, in some cases, wrote storylines that are only going to happen five or 10 years from now at the real life Fox. Or I'll say 11 months from now on election night. I'll tell you, the election night episode, Brian, was very, very disconcerting. <laughs> <laughs> the one thing we know about 2024's election night at Fox is that the guy who ran the decision desk in 2020, Arnon Mishkin, a veteran of Fox, a, a true professional, a scientist, he will be in charge again in 2024. So that's the one sort of good bit of news we have or one good positive sign. But I think we, you, uh, people are right to be questioning and, and wondering, how's Fox going to handle this? With Trump trying to seek reelection. Well, let's go back to that three years ago, just on election night 2020, because you had Arnon, who's the brains of the operation. But then you had Bill Salmon, who I know going back to geez, Bush world in 2000 and Chris Steyerwalt, who I've always thought a lot of for a long time, they get pushed out. So how is it that Steyerwalt and Salmon get axed? But the guy who looked at the math and made this decision gets to stay because clearly even nowadays, he must be under enormous pressure because thinking back to Arizona, right, they make the call. Even we were, you know, sitting there going, holy shit, Fox just called Arizona for <laughs> Biden. What? And no right. one else was willing to do it. Right. Totally. And so we're like, oh, this, you know, we're, you know, look, 
this is, you know, three years ago now. So we're like, this is Rupert's revenge, right? Like maybe <laughs> we weren't surprised, right, that Biden won Arizona, but we were certainly surprised that Fox called it first. Right. I think the answer to your question is on page 118 of the book, and I'll give it away to our listeners, okay? I feel like the week after Biden uh, wins Arizona, the weekend after Biden is projected to be president-elect, there is such a panic inside Fox. By Monday, November 9th, there's such a panic. A producer says to me that day, quote, we're bleeding eyeballs. You know, sorry for the image, but that's how it felt for these producers and staffers at Fox. So there had to be scapegoats. There had to be scapegoats and Salmon and Sirewall end up being the scapegoats. But I think your question about why them and not Michigan, why does Michigan survive? I think it's answered in an email that came out through Dominion that was underappreciated at the time. And here's the email. Suzanne Scott, head of Fox News Media, she says, Salmon not understanding the impact of the brand, the arrogance in calling Arizona is astonishing. And she distinguished between Michigan. She says, look, Michigan's a scientist. He's just following the data. But Salmon, she says, is supposed to protect the brand. Now, I don't know how you're supposed to square that circle because the brand, according to the name, is a news brand. But when she says protect the brand, what she means is don't talk about the news. Try to sugarcoat the news. Try to make the news a little more palatable for our viewers who don't want to hear it. And like, honestly, I don't know what Bill Salmon was supposed to do differently. Do you? No. And that's the whole idea, though. And this is one thing, though, as you start talking about, you know, election night and the post-election period, you know, it goes back to that now infamous quote. And if American democracy dies, Brian, it will be at the hands of the quote, what's the harm in humoring him for a little while? I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Oh, my God, that quote. Isn't that the quote? It's like the Rosetta Stone to understanding this decade. The Rosetta Stone is a great way to describe it of the willingness of the likes of Fox News of Republican grandees and the operative class in Washington, of all being willing to go along with it because, A, what's the hu harm in humoring him? B, I don't want to be the guy that tells him he lost. Or C, <laughs> we have a financial interest in keeping this alive because if we don't, these people will go to OAN or Right Side Broadcast Network, whatever it is. And so it all comes down to the ultimate, I'm chicken shit, I'm worried about my own brand, as you called about it. And I want to talk about Raj Shah because he and I go literally back almost 20 years <laughs> together. It's all about selfishness and greed, right? Yes. That's what it yes. is. For people who don't remember that Washington Post quote, they quoted a senior Republican official who said, what's the downside for humoring Trump for a little bit of time? No one thinks the results are going to change. He'll tweet, he'll complain, and then he'll leave office. And I thought that's the quote is something that was shared internally at Fox between Tucker Carlson and producer Alex Pfeiffer. And here's what Pfeiffer said in response that is exactly right. Pfeiffer replied and said, that official's wrong. There is a downside to humoring him, obviously. Pfeiffer said, quote, it's like birtherism 2.0. It's a grassroots movement that the GOP leadership thinks they can control and they will, it will go away, but this won't go away. And, you know, I got to give credit where it's due. Some of these Fox producers, they saw it coming. They knew the truth. They knew what was going to happen to our country. But Tucker knew. Laura Ingram knew. Sean Hannity knew. They were all there. And, you know, and you record this and we saw this with the January 6th hearings that released some of this stuff, too, which is they're texting into Meadows. Tell him to stop. Tell him to call those people off. This is ruining his legacy. You know, maybe the reason why they were doing it was because they wanted Trump to survive to fight another day. But at the end of the day, they were like, he has to tell them to stop. He wouldn't. And then instead of saying, washed our hands of it. 
they and again this is where the symbiotic relationship of all of this and and brian from our perspective it is an authoritarian movement fox is the head of its propaganda right but it all works together it's all intertwined with one another that's why i emphasize the word network when i talk about network of lies it is bigger than fox um i focus on fox for a variety of reasons and fox is still the the biggest force by far I, i call it the beating heart of the gop but the arteries are clogged and it's seen better days. Fox is joined by so many other outlets in that network and it creates a network effect where, you know, you read the same crazy story in 10 different places. You're more likely to consume it, internalize it and believe it's true because it's coming from that entire network. And I think one thing, you know, when Tucker at Carlson was still on the air, who very much was long time a member of the establishment, right? Let's just yeah, be clear oh, about that. And when I yeah. went, gosh, it must be six, almost seven years ago now, right? When I went to the gridiron dinner with my dad, which was the gridiron dinner is this literally white tie and tails. It's the media, right? The political media, everybody else, right? It's very hail fellow, well met. Tucker's walking around there and everybody's slapping his back. Everybody's smiling. Everybody's giving him hugs and hearty handshakes, right? So like he had not been exercised from that world, but 3 million viewers a night seems like a lot on cable news, Brian, but that's like a CSI rerun in the otherwise real world, right? It is, but here's why I think the raw numbers are an understatement of Fox's power. Yes, Tucker was getting 3 million viewers a night, but it wasn't always the same 3 million. And those 3 million, some were watching a repeat, others were watching a repeat, others were watching clips on social media. And here's really the critical part. Almost everybody else at Fox was watching Tucker. You know, all these other right-wing media hosts and producers and writers were watching Tucker. So I do think he was uniquely agenda setting, even though it's a a fringe minority of an audience in terms of a slice of the country. Well, and also the clips, the YouTube, all the other things that get pushed around. And I'll just let me go back to early 2020 when I was in New Hampshire. Trump was doing a rally across the street from the hotel where sort of all the political rabble was gathered. And I went and I asked people these questions like, why are you here? Why do you support Trump? It could have been an older couple, middle-aged man, middle-aged woman, young kids who come across the border from Vermont, whatever it was, Brian. It was like they had all gotten the same facts and were reading, boom, 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 boom. Here's why I'm for him. Here's why I'm for him. Here's what. And it reminded me or woke me up to the idea, because this is now almost four years ago, of how just to your point about the three million effective and efficient this messaging operation is. It is really, really good at what it does. It's scary good. And I feel it on a very personal level. You know, sure. I feel it in my Twitter mentions, right? <laughs> and I'm sure some of our listeners do too. When this kind of, uh, I don't know what we call it, you know, this social media mob decides to to pick up and, and go after someone, it's scarily efficient. You know, I used the word harass earlier about Greg Gutfeld. That's the wrong word. He just teases me. But what real harassment looks like are these social media mob storms that, that spur up and a thousand people all say the same thing, all shout the same slur at the same time. Uh, that really is online harassment. And it, it's amazing the way that it can be directed and redirected in real time. Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O. 
odoo.com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. So let's talk about the crossover and the transformation. Like Hannity's always been Hannity. I mean, I remember him going back to 2000, right? I mean, Sean said whatever Sean thought was best for him and ratings and everything else. And Ingram, I can't even begin to understand. But Carlson, again, was an otherwise, you know, you talk about when he was on Crossfire, right? He wasn't nearly as pro-life as the rest of the pro-lifers. He wasn't nearly as anti-gay as the rest of the anti-gay sort of part of the social conservative, what was then a social conservative wing of the GOP. And then you take a guy like Raj Shah, who was at the time at Fox, the head of the brand protection unit, I think it was called, which is not at all Orwellian. Now, you should know, like for everybody, the reason I bring up Raj is because I hired him, Brian, as our lone in-house opposition research on the McCain presidential campaign in 2007, right? So like I go back a long way. I remember Raj, you know, being at the RNC in 16 you know, before the election saying, hey, do you, after this is over, do you think you can help me out? Sure. And then the day after the election telling me you're, I'm going to the White House and I'm like, you're doing what? And then before you know it, like he's part of the matrix. And then, you know, he leaves the White House. He goes to Fox. Now he I think he works for Speaker Mike Johnson. This is a guy who I have to believe because I've known him for so long and I've been with him at the best of times and the worst of times that he knows better. But here he is. Carlson's the same way. Like at some point, they know better, but they do it anyway. They do it anyway. And we have the proof now because we have it in their own words. We have it in their own emails. I was just pulling up the day that uh, Rudy had the, what do we call it? The literal meltdown, that press conference where the hair dry is dipping down. Shaw is in a chat room with one of his brand protection unit colleagues. By the way, I think they came up with that name themselves. So this was kind of some people inside Fox joked about it, like ridiculed it. They think they're the brand protectors. Right. But Shaw is, is watching the presser with his colleagues. And, and Shaw says, you know, this sounds so fucking crazy. He knows that what Rudy is saying makes no sense. I think Shaw's joke was Rudy objectively looks like he was a dead person voting two weeks ago. So <laughs> right. you know, we have these guys in their own words. And yet, I don't know if it's shamelessness. I don't know if it's, you know, crass commercial calculations. They just, you know, roll on. He rolls from a job at Fox into a job with the new speaker. So let's talk a little bit about Dominion, the Dominion lawsuit and the end of Tucker Carlson at Fox. So they have Sidney Powell who's this crazy attorney from Texas, she's going on the air. You know, she's another one of these people, Brian, where but for a wacky, and wacky is the wrong word, but for an unhinged authoritarian movement, you know, out of control White House, Sidney Powell never comes within a country mile of anything like this, right? <laughs> they take one look at her and eventually even Trump didn't be like, nope, don't want her. So she's going off on, Hugo Chavez and dead people and, you know, stealing votes and everything else. And this sort of unspools, you mentioned at the top with Maria Bartiromo. And now this becomes an article of faith that Dominion, Smartmatic, the other voting machine company, right, have been stealing votes. And suddenly this becomes not only a talking point, but in the fantasy world of Fox News, right wing media, Magaland, the truth. The truth, the only truth. And you must subscribe or else you're you're on the outside. You know, you're not in the in-group anymore. You're, you're part of the out-group. I think it was so much more kind of orchestrated than I realized at the time. Because when I when I was living it and you were living it and, you know, we, we, we were seeing this birtherism 2.0 start to happen, 
it felt like kind of a ragtag situation. But what I realized going through these emails is that Sidney Powell and Maria Bartiromo are working together to hatch this story on live TV. And before they do it, Maria forwards it to Eric Trump and talks to Eric Trump about the conspiracy theory. So even though it starts with some random woman in Minnesota who admits her ideas are somewhat wackadoodle, and she's sending misinformation, disinformation about Dominion, claiming Nancy Pelosi's involved, all of these lies. Right. At one point, even Bartiromo says, quote, there's an intel source telling me that President Trump did, in fact, win the election. And no one even blinked. Right. No one even blinks at Fox. Can you imagine if I got on CNN and said something like that? <laughs> uh, you know, I would have been hauled into the boss's office and rightly so. They probably would never let me out. But with Maria Bartiromo, it, it, for some reason, she just skates. And I got to be honest, Reed, one of my only disappointments about this book, I guess I, I guess I shouldn't say it's during a book tour, but it's the truth. I wanted to get to the bottom of why she's still there. Lou Dobbs was canned right away. Tucker Carlson was ousted for all sorts of other reasons we can get into. Janine Pirro was demoted. These are some of the folks that were named in the Dominion suit. Maria Bartiromo, though, she was patient zero, and she's still there doing what she was doing. Now, now I think there are answers to that mystery. I just couldn't quite get at them in a way that I could report them. You know, I, I want to be better than the foxes. I want to make sure that I'm fully vetting what I'm reporting. But I, I really hope we can, I hope at some point we get an answer to that question, right? Why was she treated as untouchable. But again, Bartiromo is another one of those who, you know, we use the Rubicon as a metaphor too much, but she's another one who not only crossed it, but leapt over it and never to look back and went galloping into the the crazy countryside, right? She didn't look back at CNBC and say, that's what I was. She said, where am I going from here? Like six years ago, maybe only five years ago, I was like dancing with her at a party in the Hamptons with a bunch of celebrities. And, you know, we were like, you know, we weren't we weren't friends back then, but I felt like we lived on the same planet. And by the end of the Trump presidency, we did not live on the same planet anymore because she's texting C. Bannon saying, OMG, I'm so depressed. I can't take this. You know, I, the idea of a Trump loss is so distressing to her that she can't believe it. And honestly, there are some messages that indicate she truly, genuinely believed Trump was the winner. Like she was actually high on her own supply. Now, I don't say that to let her off easy, but I think for Dominion, actually, it was a challenge because her state of mind indicated that she really, truly believed the lies. Well, and, you know, you fast forward, you've got Tucker, right? Again, Dominion, a lot of this comes to a literal head with January 6th, where it becomes, you use the expression memory holding or telling the alternative story, right? And we even saw this as we're recording this today, another nut member of Congress from Louisiana claiming in front of Chris Ray that, you know, this was like FBI agents you know, dressed up as Trump supporters. And so the things that's to your point, the things that start at Fox become the reality for MAGA and you can't convince them otherwise. And the more you try and convince them, the more you're convinced you're lying to them. <laughs> exactly. Because conspiracy theories and conspiracy thinking is self sealing. Any attempt to dispute or disprove it is part of the plot. I think what you said about January 6th is critical. And I want to point people to that in the book because it's not been appreciated fully. Janine Pirro was on television three days before the attack or four days before the attack, invoking the Revolutionary War, talking about doing battle like those soldiers did. Mark Levin did a 15 minute long speech on Fox that weekend saying, if we don't fight his word, if we don't fight on January 6th on the floor of the Senate and the House, we're done. So when you see those rioters on the floor of the Senate, you might think back to Mark Levin. Now, obviously, that's not what he meant. He wasn't expecting a riot. 
But these guys, these fantasists, were screaming at the top of their lungs on Fox, while the doubters like Sean Hannity were quiet. Sean Hannity was concerned about January 6th. He was fearing what might happen. He tested Mark Meadows on January 5th and said, quote, I'm very worried about the next 48 hours. Well, and as well, they should have been. But then you you fast forward a year from January 6th. Tucker's still on the air, right? So January 6th, 2022. And remember that I believe it was either on the 5th or earlier that day in 2022 that Ted Cruz went on, you know, was being interviewed. He called it a riot, right? And Carlson just goes after him, just lambastes him, then has him on the air and abases him ruthlessly, stripping yes. the bark off of him. And Cruz is like, <laughs> I'm sorry, I misspoke. And Carlson's like, no, Ted, you're a constitutional lawyer. You know what you said. And so here we are now, a year from it, almost two years ago now, Brian, and Carlson's deeper in the hole. He has not come back to reality. And this is one thing I've seen that's really throughout your book. It's throughout the people that we've talked about here, which is the people in this movement, in this space, in this bubble, never come back to normal. They never go back to the light. They're always drawn <laughs> further into crazy and into the darkness. And as they go, so go their people. Cruz is the best example of that, perhaps. I mean, he he was begging Carlson for forgiveness. And the crime that he committed was that he called January 6th a violent terrorist attack. I actually think there should be some more bravery by more people to use the word terror in connection with that attack that day. But but that's a, that's a sidebar. Cruz said he was being consistent because he had always called people who assault cops terrorists. That was his position for many years. Carlson, of course, he couldn't stand that because he couldn't stand those labels being applied to what happened on January 6th because Carlson was at the forefront of redefining what happened and creating a different story, telling a different story about January 6th. And I, I got to admit, he was kind of successful. You know, he, he was able in the minds of Trump voters to redefine January 6th as if Trump fans who stormed the Capitol were victims, right? Victims of a Fed surrection, victims of government agents who- They're who, now uh, hostages. Right. Trump refers to them as hostages. He doesn't start rallies with the national anthem. He has a, an anthem to them. The horse vessel song, for Christ's sake. And I think the, the crucial thing about that is because of that story that Tucker told and, and not just Tucker, the whole network of lies, it brought Trump back to center stage. Trump really was deplatformed after January 6th. Rupert Murdoch said, we're going to make him a non-person. We're going to pivot away from Trump. Trump disappeared from Fox's airwaves. But because Tucker told a story that allowed Trump to come back, that absolved Trump of his sins, Trump was able to come back to center stage. And again, it wasn't just Tucker. It was Kevin McCarthy. It was, I've said this a lot recently, and it, you will never get me to dispute it, is if Mitch McConnell wanted Donald Trump to be gone from the American political stage, he had the 17 votes in the second impeachment to do it. And he was more worried about being the majority leader of the Senate than protecting the country. And now where is he? He's weakened. Trump is back. McConnell almost got killed on January 6th, right? They were looking for him, as we saw from Mitt Romney's text in the book about him by McKay Coppins. They would have killed these people, Brian. And here they are. They're still doing it. Yesterday or two days ago, I was on a podcast with a, a right-leaning host and he basically said, why do you talk about January 6th so much? You know, it didn't, didn't the media overstate January 6th? And then I'm on with Dan Abrams on News Nation. Same thing. Why was there so much coverage from the left-leaning media of the January 6th committee hearings? And you know what came out of my mouth? And I don't know if it's right or wrong, but I, I said, there's no way to cover this too much. There's no way to do too much on this because this, 
this was a defining event in our history, at least in our in our lives. It was a defining event in our lives. And I know a lot of people don't want it to be. I know they, they don't like this. They're not comfortable with that. As Tucker famously said, it's not your fault. He said to his viewers the night of the riot, it's not your fault. It's their fault. He was trying to absolve them of their perceived sins immediately. But I think we have to keep addressing this. And uh, I think there's still, frankly, even more to learn about the events. Vacation starts with VA. Whether you're feeling beachy, mountainy, or every E in between, you'll find all that you love all in one trip to Virginia. Start yours at virginia.org. So let me switch gears a little bit and away from the book for a minute and into something that you just talked about, which is why is it eight and a half years after Donald Trump came down the escalator, as someone who has studied the media, is a practitioner of observing it, why does American political media still have such a hard time describing who and what Trump is and what it is he represents? And I utilize this, Brian, in the New York Times recently. Maggie Haberman, Jonathan Swan, and one other writer who I can't recall, they did a massive interview with Stephen Miller and a bunch of pro-Trump people where they lay out in excruciating detail the types of things they want to do vis-a-vis immigration in a second Trump term. This was not a scoop. This was not a story they broke. This was a story that Stephen Miller wanted to tell and MAGA wanted to tell. They mentioned court cases and this and that, but it ignores the idea that somehow, A, this is normal, and B, if he comes back, that like any of these people will care what a federal court says about anything. Honestly, I would love to hear your answer to this. I think the press is really complicated, first of all, and everyone has a different definition of the media, and you know we should take it in its totality, and you know there, there are times where individual stories are going to fall short, but in totality, I think anyone who wants to know who Trump is, what he represents, what his movement represents, what the agenda is. I think anyone who wants to know can pretty easily find out. But you know, you're saying, is it treated as normal? Is it is it not treated as aberrant? And that gets into a space that is just historically very uncomfortable for the mainstream media. I wrestled with this at you know my years at CNN. How do we, within the the four walls of the television screen, within the the pages of a newspaper, within the the fonts that we usually use for banners, how do we signal that this is different? And by the way, there are actually structural issues that hold us back. I mean, I'm going to have to say a silly example, but it gets to the the truth. Cable news, every banner is the same size, right? Whether it's a a terror attack or it's a a puppy, you know, crossing the street, like it's all looks the same, right? Television has a flattening effect where everything is the same level of importance. And I think those are the sorts of, again, that's like a a silly example of a a real actual problem. How do you signal to the audience that this is different? This is abnormal, that historians have warned of this. Gosh, I think we need a lot more historians on television and in the pages of opinion columns right now. We need a lot more of that context. It's almost as if fact checking has to be joined by history checking so that there is real context around these plans. Right. But what's your answer? I would say that from my perspective, again, as an observer, you know, and, and, and a media, you know, I have again, I get quoted, I go on TV, whatever it is, is there's a desire to be objective, which I appreciate. The problem is objectivity needs to be squared with the idea of whether or not what you're reporting, to your point, is normal, is the truth, and what its impact is. And that does not mean you need to editorialize in a straight news thing, but it should mean like 
why did the vermin thing that Trump said on Veterans Day blow up so much? Because that was a clear and direct callback to the language of Adolf Hitler 90, 100 years ago. You couldn't deny it because vermin is such a specific word, right? It's not rats. It's not raccoons. It's, it's vermin, right? It's not a word that, frankly, you hear every day. And he used it on purpose. I think the other part, too, is use CNN or, you know, CNN in particular, no offense, but, you know, they try and have a panel of Republicans and Democrats. And you can see that the Republicans are desperately trying to figure out either they are MAGA and they're just going to spew whatever the MAGA talking point is, or they go on and they have to find like in Mitt Romney said, you know, I'm either, you know, the left either loves me or hates me. The right either loves me or hates me, which is you have to context is king here. What is it that we're facing? Like authoritarians historically, again, that word tell you what they want to do. The Trump people are now screaming it from the rafters. You have to say, like, what they're saying is putting people in camps. Here's where we put people in camps in this country. World War II, when we locked up hundreds of thousands of Japanese Americans, right? World War II, where the Germans killed six million Jews and however many gypsies in camps. The British, when they put people in camps in South Africa during the Boer War, camps lead to bad things. They never lead to good things. What's happening in the camps in Syria or any place else where refugees are now collected? Nothing good happens, right? The collection of people in places for you know, either to be detained, to be punished, whatever. The Uyghurs, right, in Western China, nothing good ever happens in these places. And so now they're saying, yeah, that's what we want to do. And we want to deport tens of millions of people. Okay, tell me this for our middle aged white listeners, Brian. Where do you expect the people that you take for granted? Because that's what happens. We take folks for granted who do the often underpaid, what might be considered menial tasks that Americans get to take for granted. Who is going to do those things? Those are the questions people should ask. Because if it's someone who cleans your home, if it's someone who cuts your grass, if it's someone who's a line cook in your favorite restaurant, these are the people that keep middle-class and upper-class America moving. That's who those folks are, often almost exclusively anonymously. They're either trying to keep their own lives going, they're trying to give their kids a better life, or they're remitting hard currency back to wherever it is they came from, right? But those are the questions. How does this affect, and I think this is the part, is how do you start to connect as journalists, as the media, what they say to real life? Right. To real life and, and to the real consequences and to the real people who will suffer the consequences. We saw some of that coverage in the Trump presidency with regards to the border, but not enough. Um, in order to have that news coverage, in order to have clear eyed, no pull punches, you know, news coverage, you need to have as an anchor, as a reporter, as a writer, the backing of leadership, the backing of management. And so when you're saying, how do we get to this point? How can this news coverage be stronger and sharper and more clear? That's what comes to my mind. And I'm thinking about November of 2020 again, Maria Bartiromo gets the first interview with Donald Trump after Trump lost. And Trump goes on the phone and refuses to accept that he lost and claims that he won and says it was stolen and lied, lied, lied. And that show was on at 10 a.m. Eastern on, on Fox. And then my show started on CNN at 11 a.m. And when we're watching this interview, this scary interview, we threw out the plan for, for my show. And we said, we've got to lead with Trump. You know, Trump's lying. He's hurting the country. He's scaring people. So I go on the air at 11 a.m. and I say, he is delusional. He is making claims that are dangerous. 
you know, this is a delusional president. And I could only say that because I knew I had the support of management, right? Not that management agreed with my words, but that they would back me up, right? That I think is the underappreciated or underestimated part of how this business works, the, the news business. You got to have the backing of management. You got to know that they have your back. And I guess I, I raise that only as a question going into 2024. What will owners of major media companies do? This has been in the news lately about Univision. Have you read about this? Yeah, sure. You know, the softball interview that Univision did with Trump. And then they canceled a bunch of Biden's advertising. Yeah. And I think we're going to have to watch for signs like that. Uh, we're going to have to pay close attention to what the owners and managers of these companies are doing. Because in order to get clear-eyed, call it like it is coverage, being louder than the liars, you have to have the backing of management or the owners. But, you know, it's interesting. Let me bring the politics of media and the business of media together, which is whether or not it's Fox or Univision, you know, CNN's been accused of this. We can debate that another time is the forces of movement conservatism have had all the money they have needed for the most part to go gobble up any media property they can find or create the ones they think they need. And I don't want to say the left because I think the left has tried it and it has just not historically been successful. But the pro-democracy side, obviously, that's what I consider myself to be part of the pro-democracy coalition, has not done it. And actually, about a year ago, I was at a dinner and you'll be interested. There was some scuttlebutt amongst people that I don't know and I only heard it this one time. So take it for what it's worth is that maybe CNN was on the block. Right. Maybe David Zaslav was like, it's just too much trouble. We can make a bunch of money on it. It'll fill some other holes cash wise. And it was like a whole bunch of right wing gajillionaires were lining up to get their bid in. And I asked this person who I was talking to because they said, well, I'm going to try and do this, too. I said, OK, well, how's it coming? Like, as it always does. And what do you mean? Well, if I need one hundred million dollars, what I hear is when you get to the first ninety nine million, let me know and I'll throw in the last bit. Oh, interesting. <laughs> right. Which is as opposed to conservatives like. Where do you want the money? Where should I wire it? I'll pay for it. We'll get it. You know, Salem's been around for a million years. Sinclair, right? And this is where I think the media doesn't understand, which is if you're sitting there, you know, Brian, and you're in Albuquerque, and I, I don't know that there's a Sinclair station in Albuquerque, but I'm just using it as a for instance. And you've been, you know, you're sitting there and you're having a cup of coffee in the morning, and you're watching the news and traffic and weather, and then they come on and they do their 60 second, you know, viewpoint or whatever they call it. Like that's all orchestrated from wherever the hell Sinclair is based. And they're getting their talking points from Fox, Magaland, the Heritage Foundation or whatever it is. And it all ties together. And then before you know it, people are like, I can't believe Donald Trump is winning in some of these places. Well, why not? <laughs> the conservative slash right wing media is a hell of a lot bigger and more powerful than anybody gives it credit for. And I'll say this before I shut up mm, is I think that is in many ways, it is the normative force in American political media, which is a lot of times what starts on the right makes it to the middle, to the mainstream, because they just say it over and over and over and over again, going back to what we started with. And when half the people you're covering politically are saying it, how does it not bleed into the mainstream? Trump was early on this. You know, there was a Vanity Fair article from 1990 where Trump's lawyers quoted saying, Donald is a believer in the big lie theory. If you say it over and over again, people will believe it. And yeah, what you're describing is also the, the, the way that this system works, uh, not just with lies, but also with policy arguments, with what should be on the agenda? What should be the top priority? How should we think about an issue? How should we frame a debate about the border? There is no equivalent to that on the left at all. 
Uh, what there is is a, a giant system of news coverage, which many right-wingers think is left-wing, but is not, because that system of news coverage is trying to gather facts, not try to change public opinion. And I, I know that, you know, Sean Hannity's never going to believe that. He has to insist that the press is the enemy, just like Trump says. But the reality is we have a, we have a giant pool of journalists and, and, and news outlets that are flawed, but trying. And then we have a pretty small left-wing media that's actually left-wing, and then what we have is what you said, which is a really, really large right-wing media apparatus. So in our closing few minutes, I want to ask you to look into your crystal ball as someone, again, who has oh, my studied, crystal ball is broken, but I'll I know, try. Listen, all of ours are. <laughs> what is the future of of American media? I mean, you reference the fact that, you know, broadcast news, right, for lack of a better way to put it, broadcast cable news is hemorrhaging. Streaming can't seem to figure itself out. You know, you and I can sit here and look at each other. Podcasts, we all have a podcast now, right? Seem to be very popular. They're relatively speaking inexpensive to produce. You can advertise against them. What does the media landscape look like going forward here? I think the answer to your question is all of the above. You know, the future of media is, is all of the above. And that can mean really wonderful things and also really horrendous things. You know, by the way, for more, listen to my podcast, Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. It's like you're, you're absolutely right about this dynamic where we have saturation, right? We have information saturation. And I'm going to use an analogy that's like not quite right and it's kind of gross, but let's use it. Picture that we're at a garbage dump, you know, and in this garbage dump, there's a lot of trash, but there's also some treasure. To me, that's the media, uh, the state of the media, not, you know, the news media, but the entire media system. You know, you look at Netflix. It's a lot of junk I don't want to watch, but then there's some treasure. Yeah, but they're asking you to pay more and more for the treasure, even though there's always going to be more trash than treasure. on. That's that. right. They are. And that's a part of the story is that the best stuff is behind a paywall. Same for local news sites. You know, I log on to a local news site. It's larded up with ads and junk and trash. But in there somewhere, there's some treasure for my family to learn about my community. And that, too, is behind a paywall. So I think what's the future of media? Number one, the best stuff is going to be behind paywalls. It's going to be increasingly subscriber driven. If you want high quality news, it's going to be uh, you're going to have to pay for it. And so that's going to create, you know, these different classes of news and news consumption. But I say trash versus treasure because I hope it's a little bit empowering. Consumers, yes, it's a lot of work. The work is put on us now to figure out the difference between what is real and what is made up between fact and fiction. But we can go out and find the treasure. Like there are, there is more out there than ever before. In my view, there's, there's more in-depth, investigative, serious journalism than ever, but it takes more work to find it. And, you know, you got to put your, your dollars behind it. Let me ask one last question. And this is specifically about cable news. One, why do we still have the crawl? <laughs> Almost, you know, 22 years after 9-11. Like, why is the screen so goddamn busy? I think we still have the crawl because some researchers somewhere in some office says that it keeps viewers watching another 20 seconds longer than they otherwise would. And it contributes 0.02% to the ratings. I think that's probably why. All right. And then secondly, why is it <laughs> that, I mean, all three major cable networks are still locked into like A block, B block, C block, like four to seven minutes I mean, because the thing I find, like I was on MSNBC last night. I think I was on for five minutes, whatever it was. Right, me too. I probably said 142 words, whatever the heck. It was <laughs> fine. It was fine, right? I did it for my house. But I think the reason why, like you and I get to have a conversation. And I got to be honest with you. For me, like the, the secret of my success as an interview, Brian, is other than reading your book, little to no preparation. But I think viewers, I think, are totally okay with a conversation. So is it that, 
the cable network world still works as it, as it is because it's driven by advertising and have this many minutes an ad of ads per hour? Or is it like, do they believe that we have the recall of goldfish? So they're just going to hit you, hit you, <laughs> hit you. Or is it both? I think there's a bunch of answers to the question that all start to get to the, the full answer. You know, a couple of things come to mind. One, television's about familiarity and companionship and repetition, you know. Yeah, you said that. I thought that was really interesting. Familiarity, consistency. Yeah. People want to watch the same person. You know, they want to see the same. Why is Wolf Blitzer, you know, so beloved, so iconic? Why, you know, if you look at the ratings, uh, Bill O'Reilly for 20 years on Fox, why was he number one? Because he was there for 20 years doing the same thing every day for 20 years even on networks like the evening anchor why is it such a big deal to move an anchor because now you got to start over that's totally a big part of the answer i think another part of the answer is the demos in cable news are much much older than they are for podcasts or or digital news so the average viewer is 65 70 75 years old they might even more seek out that familiarity not just consistency in terms of hosts but also the format the structure it's predictable you know when you can get up and get your dinner ready that said, I think the best hosts on cable news are exactly what you just said. They're conversationalists. They sit back and they actually have a discussion. They're not just repeating questions that are in the prompter. Because you and I have both been on those shows. Those shows suck. So you know, I think the answer is, you know, it's, it's, it's complicated. It's the economics. It's the advertiser breaks. It's all of that. But it also points to an opening for something better, whether it's in podcasting or elsewhere. People they want to watch people. They want to listen to people. They want to feel like they know the person. And that's partly why this medium's taken off, I think. All right. I promise this is the last question. Oh, All right. Okay, so good. in your book, you talk about staring into a, a blank camera and the ephemeral nature of television. You are not on television. I mean, I assume you are occasionally, but <laughs> how is life after the camera? And what does life look like going forward? You've got a new book out. You've got The Hive. What else is going on in Brian Stelter's life? And how are you going to keep us informed about what's happening behind the scenes? Getting pushed off the treadmill was the best thing that ever happened to me because uh, <laughs> my, my daughter was about to start kindergarten. My son's in preschool. Now I yeah. get to make breakfast with them in the morning, uh, have the day, have the evenings with them, have a life again. And I didn't realize how much I was missing until I was pushed off the CNN treadmill. That said, I, I do respect the power of TV, you know? We're talking about different forms of media. Television is still very powerful, and I appreciate that. And I, I liked being on, you know, talking about my book. But I, I've really liked being a consumer of media more than a participant, more than a producer. It's been good to have a break for a while and view it from a different vantage point. So, you know, I'm doing the book. I have the podcast for Vanity Fair, but I'm really enjoying trying to see this industry differently because I know that whatever I really want to do next, whatever startup or whatever it is, it's going to come out of the wisdom that I gain from this time period. When you talk about life, what life really looks like, in 2007, I left the John McCain campaign in the summer of 07, and I went to work. I went back to California where I was living. I was living in Sacramento working for a PR slash campaign firm. Folks showed up about nine. Last person was gone by 5.30. So I'm, I'm in the office at 5.30, Brian, and I'm alone, right? <laughs> and I was like, oh, wait a second. This is life. You fill these next hours before you go to bed with life. And it took, to your point, it was sort of like, well, you know, leaving the McCain campaign was traumatic, but for that, I would not have really understood really what else is out there. So, well, listen, where can we find the hive? Where can we find, if you still dare to go on social media, where can we find you there? <laughs> I am on X and threads at Brian Stelter. The book's at networkoflies.com and the podcast is inside the hive. Thank you for the plug. Of course, absolutely, everybody. As always, you can find Network of Lies wherever you find 
your favorite books, local, Amazon, et cetera, et cetera. As always, gang, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen, threads and Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP and Substack now, the home front, because we're all content creators at the end of the day, Brian. Brian Stelter, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Everybody else, we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.